Welcome to the Chief Endurance Officer Podcast. I'm your host, Greg McDonough. Each week, we hear real-time stories from athletes and CEOs on how to maximize performance through an endurance mindset. Let's get started. Welcome to the Chief Endurance Officer Podcast. I'm your host, Greg McDonough. I am absolutely excited for our guest today. She is a board-certified physician associate, an adaptive educator, and keynote speaker, the founder and president of Less Leg, More Heart, an organization addressing the gaps in the limb loss community. She's also a CrossFit athlete, personal trainer. Please welcome Tina Hurley. Welcome, Tina. Well, thanks, Greg. Great to be here. It's awesome to have you on the show. Uh, we love talking about endurance and in the endurance mindset. So my question for you is, Tina, tell me about how your endurance mindset has impacted your life unexpectedly. I didn't know I had one. I guess that's the first thing to say, uh, you know. It's a great question because you don't know what you're capable of or the, you know, the pieces of the equation that you need to gather before you can find the answers. And the endurance mindset was one of the things I had to develop and make before or understand before I could really utilize it. And it was only through fumbling forward and sort of doing things the hard way and um, recognizing that the poor outcomes were less about the things that were happening in my life, but more about the way I was responding to them that were leading to, um, you know, less than ideal circumstances. And, uh, you know, there were so many specific examples along the way, but really, I think that when I learned uh, that by shifting mindset and changing the lenses that I was wearing to view my story and also changing the narrative that I had internally about my story, it created uh, an empowerment and a sense of um, uh, internal motivation and uh, kindness to myself that allowed for me to to take a breath, right? To oxygenate. You think about endurance, you think about aerobic capacity and, and oxygen being the primary driver in the Krebs cycle and all the nerds out there, you know, in the biology world will understand. For me, um, I didn't have oxygen for so long. I was, you know, I was just grasping at straws to just try to survive. And that chronic fight or flight and the hormonal changes and all of that allowed for me to um, really be myopic. You know, I was living right in front of myself and wasn't able to, to see out and to expand and to breathe and to breathe life into my, my life or light into my life. So the, the concept of really thinking more long-term, you know, thinking about, um, you know, completing the next task and uh, identifying with myself as the best version of myself in order to achieve it, rather than assuming that I needed to be that in that moment and just feeling discouraged and and shamed. You know, all of endurance mindset isn't. I I don't believe, in my opinion, is a, a specific thing. I think it's many things that you utilize at the right times at stages in your journey to go the distance. And those tools change and the phases in life that you go through change. And so uh, endurance mindset for me is about building your tool belt. And it's significantly changed my life. I mean, I went from identifying with the, the two words, you know, if you had signs over your head that you portrayed to your society and that you believed society truly thought about you. My two, after I lost my leg and I had to and my marriage, and my husband had left all these things. They were unlovable and disfigured, genuinely. Like to the mm -hmm. core of my soul, that is what I felt I was, all that I had to offer and how I was viewed. And that really affected the, um, the 
world around me and the opportunities that I had. And as soon as I shifted that and changed the statements to myself about who I was, uh, that's really when the beauty of life opened up. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm curious, was there something that triggered that mindset shift, that, that change in narrative that happened in your life at that time? Something specific or that you could get into the details around? Yeah, there's actually a, a very specific inciting event. Uh, I had given up, um, which I don't think I've ever done, but I just felt like I had nothing more to give. I'd had, uh, at this time, I'd had 11 surgeries in less than two and a half years. I was uh, freshly amputated. I had just had a debridement surgery with a big wound back on my leg. I lived in a three-story house on 60 acres of conservation with two dogs to care for. The winter was coming. The prognosis on my limb was bad. My other leg is affected and we hadn't even started surgical attempts at that. So, I mean, it was a really, really hard time. I was on medications. I was in a fog. I wasn't able to work. I couldn't do the things that brought me joy, like fitness and and movement and creating things with my body. And um, I came home from a doctor's appointment and all of my husband's stuff was gone out of the house one day after a one-year anniversary. And if I'm going to blow your mind right now, it was actually on October 11th of 2016 today. And yesterday was the day of our, our marriage. So um, it's just wild that that question's being asked today. But I came home from a doctor's appointment that someone else had driven me to. Half the house was gone. Pictures were off the walls. Everything's out. And I really felt like at that moment, the last little bit of carpet that was um, under the one foot I had remaining really was um, ripped. And I didn't know what to do very much clinically. I, I'm sure I was depressed. I, I should have probably gotten more help along the way, but um, I was too proud, too stubborn, you know, didn't understand the strength and vulnerability. So I did what I, the only thing I knew how to do, which was just escape. So I went upstairs into my, the big bed now lonely in this house of just like eerie memories. And I laid down and I didn't have the mental strength to want to do anything. I didn't have the physical strength to do anything because I couldn't eat because I was just so depressed and sad and just, I mean, like guttural, guttural to the core pain. Like when you lose someone you love, whether they're, you know, like a death, it was real. I had to, it was so deep, the pain. Um, and I was so fragile that it, I just didn't have anything. And, uh, I couldn't feed my dogs in the house because I didn't have the strength to do it because I hadn't eaten in weeks. I lost almost 30 pounds of muscle over the course of nearly a month. And I didn't allow anyone that called me to get in touch with me. I did not want to be seen that way. I was hoping it was temporary, but I didn't know. And I just, I was too proud to show myself in that way and didn't know how to ask for help because I was always the one that gave help. And um, a best friend broke into my house. She hadn't gotten in touch with me. She hadn't been able to get me on the phone. She knew I just had a surgery. She knew the circumstance of my husband leaving and she drove 45 minutes, broke in through the side of my garage and found me in bed. And I was gaunt. I was like Skeletor and um, was wearing like the same pajamas. I mean, I was just in bad shape. And the first thing she chose to say to me were, you're selfish. And this is a person that I knew my whole life. So like, you know, very few people would have been able to say that to me and have it hit the way that it hit with her. Um, brutal honesty, like the circle of trust with that, you know, she was one of those people. And she looked down at the feeble me and said, you're, you're selfish. And I was like, immediately from a place of defensiveness, I was starting to mount any kind of response I could at like, how, how 
you say that to me, you know, and, and instead uh, she just cut me off and she said, you know, you, you are allowing yourself, you're allowing yourself to be doing this. This is nothing but ego. This has nothing to do with Dan. This has nothing to do with your loss. This is everything to do with your choice. You're choosing this. And that makes me sad. And I wish you weren't so selfish and you would let us that love you help you. And man, that kicked me right in the, the soul. <laughs> and, um, and she was able to get me out of bed and, you know, help me hobble downstairs to try to nourish myself. And then that, that really was the, the beginning of the ascent. But uh, what a powerful moment of intervention. Mm, a, a true miracle. I wonder, is that something that she did on her own? Or was there like a group of friends and she got selected or was there, or she just get motivated one day and say, you know what, enough's enough. I'm going to go save Tina's life. Yeah, she, I don't think she knew she was. And um, it was just, she was just called to do it. She just, uh, she wasn't comfortable with the silence. She didn't, she needed to just know I was okay. I mean, I probably, you know, I could have been, I'm, I'm a strong, independent, at least former to that person that, you know, could be too busy to answer back she just she knew me too well to know that it was just a i'm too busy you know situation and i don't think that she her ethical compass uh you know drove her to do it she wasn't going to be able to sleep without just putting her eyes on me and assessing the situation changing topic slightly um how do you use that experience in other parts of your life now yeah uh well i mean the, the best part is, you know, the slogan for the nonprofit that I've created that's helping other people recognize the strength and vulnerability. The slogan is rise by lifting others. And, you know, inherently, we believe that there, you know, that we are weak if we need help from others. But what we don't necessarily recognize and what that example helped me understand is that by not allowing others to enter at the broken stages to help us with the tools and the love and the time and the kindness that they have right there in their life. We're actually denying them of joy and of their capacity to um, be elevated by fulfilling the sense, the very innate sense that I feel like we're all here for, which is our interconnectedness and um, the community and the sense of giving to one another. And uh, so now I agree with her that I was selfish, but it took me a long time to get to that point. <laughs> so let's talk about your organization. Can you? Elaborate on where it's focused, how people could get in touch with it. Um, when did you start this organization? Yeah. So in 2018, I did a whole bunch of stuff. You know, I, there was this broken, right, dis, you know, disfigured, unlovable lady, gets kicked out of bed by her best friend, and then starts to just figure out who the new norm is. And, and um, that process over a year took me to some cool places, you know winning the CrossFit Games in 18 as an adaptive athlete and traveling to three countries in Europe as a pilot for the USA bobsled team and cycling the velodrome OTC in Colorado and um, just uh, participating in a beautiful program down in Texas led by an NFL player that helps rehab people of all different types of disabilities, civilians and combat wounded veterans. And, and then I volunteered for their program after that fact. And it was in serving other people with some of the tools that I picked up along that recovery year um, that I really felt passionate. You know, I really felt like selfishly the, all my suffering doesn't feel like it's so much in vain if there's something I have to offer from it. Otherwise, it's just a big, heavy rock of 
awful and you know there's no meaning there's no purpose to it and that's that's a tough pill to swallow so if i help other people then man it it feels better so the initial pursuit felt a bit selfish i feel good when i do it and i boy i like feeling good so i'm going to do more of it and what i realized is that like the dual view that i had as both an amputating physician assistant prior to my surgery and also now an amputee suffering all of the economic and you know mental and physical you know problems that uh, that folks would face but in the setting of being a six figure earner white collar professional with an ideal circumstance going into it and still having a tough time i was like you know i have this beautiful view as both the clinician and the and the patient and then also I know that if I was having such a hard time being an ideal candidate to be that person to go through it, then the average person is really struggling. So um, I thought, man, how, how do you, how do I help? How do I fix things? And so, you know, you do what anyone else does. You have, you have to figure out sort of what is broken and what you have the capacity and skills to sort of fill in. So um I found the slogan Less Like More Heart in the Boston Strong campaign. There were beautiful hundreds of photos taken of all of the survivors in the middle of the streets, you know, down into their their skin. And they had these power statements written all over them. And one of the several hundred was Heather Abbott, and she had Less Like More Heart written on her. And it was just a, a fleeting statement at that time and wasn't an organization. She went on to create her own, you know, foundation. And uh man, I felt I felt that in my soul, like the more leg they took and I took, I had three amputations higher and higher and they're still going to have to go higher and the other leg. But the the more they take of my leg, truly like the more gratitude and heart and perspective and love and um, all the things that you hope to acquire along your journey that I get in the next expedited way. And so that's, that, that was the name. I knew the name. And then it was a matter of how do I serve the goal? And the goal is to help amputees thrive and decrease their suffering during their transition and ongoing. And then also to help support the medical system because as a provider to amputees, I recognized that I was writing noncompliance in charts so much and I didn't have time to dig into all of the barriers and I didn't even have systems to support the barriers. And if the needles and narcotics and surgeries that I had to offer, which are the FDA approved things I can give them, don't work, that's all I've got in my pocket as a as a Western medicine clinician. And also, even if I were to offer them things and they have any kind of financial implications and can't pay for the treatment, they're SOL. I, I can't do anything. So how do I help make the medical system feel supported, decrease the barriers to care, help with funding for people so that their medical programs are successful, and then also provide continuing care after the fact to help readmissions and lower you know, infection rates and decrease hospital, recurrent hospitalization and suicidality and narcotic utilization and all these measures that, again, in medicine we track, but we don't have the ability to fix. And it came down to really simple stuff. You know, it's not like sexy medical practice. It's just the basics. Like people need to feel um, like they're not alone. So peer mentorship. They need to understand what's going on and feel like they have a voice in the direction of their care, which if you don't understand even by context clues, a full sentence of what someone's speaking at you in medical jargon, you're going to feel lost. So advocacy, helping people understand what they're going through, what the test results are, what their options are. And then funding, funding for holistic approaches to care, anything outside of 
the needle narcotic and surgery. Maybe it's a gym membership or it's supplementation or it's adaptive recreation equipment or it's extra counseling or extra PT or accessory adaptive equipment, um, anything that they just can't get funded. And then, you know, the last thing is safety and autonomy at home. I want to shower with dignity. I want to be able to stand and do my dishes or at least access my sink. You know, it's like basic primal things that people want to feel they're autonomous with. And um, oftentimes they do that at the expense of their safety. So we'll provide, uh, you know, ramps to their home, widen doorways, put in first floor washers and dryers if we have to, re-outfit bathrooms to have ADA specs or at least, you know, safety measures. Um, we'll send pre-prepared meals delivered to their home for them and their support systems for a number of weeks to months in the initial recovery or pay for a handyman to go and fix some of the things that might break or house cleaners to tidy up so that these people aren't doing it when they don't have it to do and they get hurt or they can't access their home and that they, they and their support systems can truly deal with the large matter at hand, which is the tidal wave of all of the medical appointments and follow-ups and things that come after hospitalization while also coping and grieving with this major loss in the midst of significant medication, pain, anguish, and to be quite honest, for most of us, an identity crisis. You don't know who you are anymore. You don't even know how to do anything. And to try to do all of that mourning, grieving, coping, in addition to all of the medical follow-ups and, you know, compliance with medications and blah, 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 and not clean your house and not eat and not shower. And I mean, it's just, um, it's a holistic, real full support and we can offer it in a customized way. So the really cool thing about organization is we took, um, the clinical information that people would acquire in a history of present illness at a physician, but we added to it social things, economic things, psychological things, so that we get a really robust entry on this person. I know this person. I know their insurances. I know their deductibles. I know their, you know, support sisters, system sisters' name and their number to contact them. Like we have everything. And then we don't just give them something like we don't want to hand stuff out. We want to empower this person to be their best self and flourish in their journey so that they can get to a point to help give, to, give back to others as well. Because if they could get in my seat, man, it would have, what a joy it is to have had this illness now because of what it's doing. And so uh, we check in on them at one, three, six, and 12 months. And then every six months after that, forever until the workflow management software we have doesn't work anymore and we have to transition or. We all are teleported to a new planet, you know? <laughs> so that's teleported. Our, our, yeah, that's our, you know, our systems are really good. Our in infrastructure is, um, you know, it's taken five years. I, I, we finally got the 501c3 after I submitted everything in early 2019. So we're, we're celebrating our fifth year at the end of the year with a beautiful gala. And, you know, it's been a, a really cool journey. You know, I have a bunch of degrees and none of them are in business. I wish they gave us some of those in school. <laughs> Because learning a business is um, the hardest part of this whole thing. You know, I know how to help people, but the, you know, growing the business and funding it and all of that has been a, a wild, fun ride. We've helped about 240 amputees in five years. We've served 34 states and metrics as of August show that we've uh, helped 42 individuals actually this year. And we're probably going to hit over 60 by the end of the year. That's so fantastic. Um and I, I, I suspect you got a donation page on your website that people could go to and, and make donations to the, to your organization. Yeah. Yeah. You can find us at www.lesslegmoreheart.com. 
You can find our YouTube channel. We have some really great stuff. I have a local TV channel that we upload content on. We have a heart to heart monthly uh, amputee support group that we run that we upload stuff onto on our uh, YouTube, our Facebook and our Instagram and our uh, LinkedIn. We have all of that under the name Less Leg More Heart. And you're right. We we could use your support. And so anyone that feels moved or motivated and has a dollar or a million dollars to spare, you can go to the donate page on our website. Um, and also some people may not have money or may not feel like that's the most um, connected with their you know, the most aligned with them way of, of showing support. And so if you have time or talent that you are interested in donating, we have so many opportunities as we expand and grow within the business side and also beneficiary relations side of the organization that we can really put anybody to work if they've got a good heart. Fantastic. And we'll include all those links in the show notes. Um, you mentioned running a business, Tina. I'd love to hear how you've taken your experiences, this endurance mindset and applied it to your business or a business situation that you said, you know what, I feel stuck or I see an opportunity. And then you say, wait a second, I can get through this because I can break it down into components or whatever the story is. I'd love to have a, a, a business share of your endurance mindset. Yeah. I, uh, if you want to go fast, you go alone, right? And if you want to go far, you go together. And so I think that the most successful sort of thing that I've learned in this business practice is that, you know, humbling yourself among people much smarter than you, than you and other things is the best way to learn and to become them. Uh, in terms of endurance mindset, you know, there's so much to learn. And if you're a student of life like I am, it's really easy to get overwhelmed. It's really easy to think about, you know, the end goal of what you're supposed to have or where you're supposed to be or what you should know. And, um, and that doesn't really help you get there. But as you mentioned, kind of breaking down, like, what's what's my next best step? I know the end where I want to be. And I know that there's so much to get there. But rather than be overwhelmed about the 7,000 ways that I could get there or what I need, if I just focus on my next step and trust that I have the capacity and the strength and passion to go that distance, I just need to focus on what the next right thing to do is. And if I don't know, seek counsel and find someone that does know or read something. And maybe that that's my next step. Maybe R&D is my next step. You know, so it's like constantly just checking back in to go, where do I want to be? And frequently just reevaluating, is that in alignment with what's best for me as a person, with the organization as a person, because things are constantly in flux. And I think that that's a, a key part of, of having any kind of, of this endurance is you may think that there's a specific trajectory, but man, Curveballs can come at any time. Trips can come at any time, right? You just, it's, we always think that we have control because we see a path, but there, it's ever shifting in the real world. And so your ability to pivot and, um, you know, trust in the capacity that you have while you follow alternative directions um, and just grace. Honestly, I think that some of this is grace. We've all been out there and you can apply it to like a physical um, skill set. Say you're running a 400 meter and you just, Today wasn't your time. Then you didn't have a great day. You know, it's like, doesn't mean you're a bad runner. Just we're allowed to have days or phases or chapters or seasons that, um, that are lessons. And if you look at them as not failures, but as lessons that you've learned, you don't feel so bad not going as fast or getting to as many places as you feel like you initially set out to go. Because maybe where exactly you were supposed to have been is in the learning phase. Absolutely. I, I I find it fascinating how often endurance racing and training line up with running a business and managing a team. It's 
it's the same lessons. And the more we're in our discomfort zone, the more we can achieve and our capacity grows. And it's this evolution is, is amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, just between the carb loading between meetings, it's very, very fabulous. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, Tina, shifting gears a little bit, talk to us about you, like your childhood, what led up to the amputations. I'd love to hear and know more about you. Yeah, really energetic little girl. I have a an older sister and a younger brother, and uh, everybody in my family is a veteran. My mother is uh, not, but she came from uh, a family that was military. So we uh, always joke that, you know, I'm the only one that lost a limb, but uh, it was my repayment for not serving, they all say. Uh, so um, military family, very blue collar. My mom stayed at home with three kids. My dad uh, worked as a foreman at the Boston Globe before they were brought over by the New York Times. It was a... Um, we were lower middle um, economic class. We didn't have a lot of extras. You know, um, my mom did the best she could with the circumstances. I, I learned a lot of hard lessons um, growing up. You know, there was a lot of uh, direct uh, punishments paternally. And, and, you know, there was a, I realized at an early age, this is with filters in place, anyone listening can hear that, but, you know, I had, I had to learn at a very early age that my safety mentally and physically was dependent on my ability to adapt and to read scenarios and to, um, and to get what I needed to get sometimes because it wasn't always provided. And uh, when I became 18, I went to college at the University of New Hampshire um, and followed in suit. I was a gymnast all growing up. And that was really the only thing, to be honest with you, that made me nap, my mother said, from like the age of five. And the reason that they were able to carve out part of their budget to pay for it was because it did keep me <laughs> asleep like it was supposed to. A lot of energy when I was little. Uh, so then I, I cheered through high school and um, went to a D1 school, University of New Hampshire. I cheered there and did some travel teams doing kind of elite competition cheerleading. And then I had a knee, a knee injury that... Uh, um, made me sort of retire my jersey and start coaching. So for the earlier part of my 20s, I was pursuing a, an undergraduate degree in exercise physiology while I was coaching all over the state of New Hampshire, doing um, choreography and uh, advanced tumbling instruction for a lot of the schools and colleges in the area. And then I went to school as a physician assistant um, because largely because the person that cared for my knee injury was a PA and I hadn't heard what that was before, but she was awesome and she worked like a doctor and she was she told me she had a flexible schedule and she had two kids at home and she had a great work-life balance. And I thought that in addition to the payment, like that seems like a decent, you know, pursuit of career. So put all my eggs in one basket and uh, went to PA school, graduated in 2010. And uh, I generalized out of the gate. I worked in acute care medicine as a hospitalist at a hospital locally. Uh, that was a 300 bed trauma, level two trauma center. And uh, I don't know, I don't remember for 16 months in my life what happened. It was so intense. And so in order to just feel comfortable, like you're not going to kill somebody every day, you are at work for 10 to 12 hours a day and you're studying the rest of the day if you, if you take it seriously. And so it was awesome. Great time in my life. I've learned so much. Uh, it really was the foundation of, my, of my, the rest of my life, but definitely hard. And it was at that time I needed an outlet. So I got into CrossFit <laughs> because nothing could feel harder in my day than the end of one of those wads, right? So I, and then I got good at it. You know, I, I seemed to be a, a fairly relentless person. And so uh, I was getting better and winning, you know, competitions and 
taking the prize money and gallivanting, you know, going on a beach vacation. And it was just such a great time in my life. And, uh, and then I had a harder time walking and then that progressed to, to not really being able to walk at all and not even the halls at work. And then that was through, um, that was in, in, into the washing machine of, you know, being the patient myself while I was concomitantly managing patients. And so after I got my diagnosis of popliteal entrapment, um, which is a rare vascular condition that traps the arteries at the back of your knees, I actually changed my profession from internal medicine as a hospitalist to vascular surgery because PAs can kind of laterally move and just, you know, apprentice on the job. So I was lucky enough to find an amazing vascular surgery position at another hospital. And uh, the physician that I worked under, just what a cool guy. An undergraduate degree in ornithology, the study of birds, for those that don't know, because I didn't know. He would be telling me about the red speckled whatever outside the window as we were like getting ready to go into an aortic reconstruction. I mean, the guy was just cool as a cucumber. He seemed to know everything about everything. He's still one of my favorite people to this day. And in fact, I've recruited him onto the board of my nonprofit at this point. And the nurse that worked in that practice is the lead intake coordinator for my nonprofit. So even though we're all not at the practice anymore, I've taken the whole team. So we're still working together because I loved it so much. But it was through, it was in that phase of working endoscular surgery, making amputees for a living. And then I lost my leg in the same chapter, which was just mind blowing. Thank you for sharing that. Um... So what's next? What are you working on now? What's the future? What's the next five years look like for you? Yeah, keeping a two-year-old alive, which is a daunting thing every day. Uh, they're always finding new ways to try to kill themselves. I, uh, I have a son. I have a son. Uh, he's two and a half. Well, he's almost three in December. So uh, spending as much quality time as I can with him is like my number one priority. You know, we only get a few years while they're little, and I'm just so blessed to have had the opportunity to participate in creation. I didn't know if that was in my cards and. Uh, you know, with my medical condition, it was just, it was all very scary and risky. And I, ch what a better time to have a kid with one leg and a complex medical condition than to wait for the world to shut down. That was a right. big hoot to tell my mom, right? <laughs> uh, so five year list, let's see, I, it's tough because, you know, being an amputee wasn't on my five year plan back then. So it's always weird to forecast another five year plan, but I would love to return to medical practice. I love medicine. And I think there's a great um, role for Western medicine. And I think the ultimate um, idea is that this organization will um, have a higher operating budget so that hiring um, another, you know, chief business officer in the organization that can sort of do the seat that I'm doing so that I can maintain more of a founder role and assist with the beneficiary award side of things, which is more of a part-time piece of it, and then return back to being a PA, ultimately in a practice that helps amputees so that I know that my patients are both Western cared for and then holistically um, cared for. So I'd like to say in five years, I can make it happen. By that time, my son will be back in school. And if my legs stay stably unstable, which is a good thing, then um, then I think that that's the best forecast. Maybe getting a Mercedes convertible back because I had to get I get to get rid of that when I had a kid so that I can have more room for activities. And I want to go back to the push button where the top opens. Nice. Yeah, I had to uh, I had a two car two door two seat sports car when we had our first child and that will quickly went away oh no um, yeah it's a temporary setback but man there are some nice things that i do miss <laughs> yeah. and i gotta tell you you mentioned time and how quickly it goes and how short it is when they're little it's even faster when they're big so mine are 15 and 11 and it's you're getting to the realizations like i only got three more years until she's off to college and it's like 
wait a second, I should stop everything and just spend time with her. But during a time, she doesn't want to spend time with me. So anyway. I read an article, who knows where it was from or the validity of it, but it essentially said that by the time that your child is 18, you will have already spent 90% of the time that you'll spend with them in your life. Isn't that tough? That's tough. That is tough. Well, naturally, I read that, and then I'm already mourning his departure for college, and he's two years old. So it's going to be a long 16 years. <laughs> right. So to walk us through the narrative of his upbringing, right? Like, as an, the son of an amputee and your story, what kind of perspective do you think he's going to have that's different than... And I asked that question because my older brother is mentally handicapped um, and was from birth, and my perspective on life is much different than what my friends were when I was growing up. Um, mm-hmm. I had a lot more of appreciation for the things that I have. And I yeah. see that in my kids now with interacting with Paul. And so I'm curious if you thought through your son's narrative and, and his experience. Yeah, you know, I, I'll go sort of to the cliche saying, my my adversity is absolutely his advantage. You know, he lives in a world where it's normal for someone to pop a leg off or to roll around as their primary modality of transport. Like he, his sight daily is the same valid person that he loves, that he knows is capable, that changes with respect to how they access the world. And it doesn't appreciate my value to him. It's just, I need alternative modalities sometimes. And that's just one very small aspect of who I am to him, who I am to the world. And I think that oftentimes folks that have disabilities, that is their ultimate um, descriptor to those looking at them. Or, you know, it's like if I walked into a room and I left, I'm not going to be Tina, the PA that is goofy and likes to laugh a lot. You know, I'm going to probably as as a primary descriptor be the girl that has the amputated leg or the prosthetic just because it's the most easy you know, visual form of identifying me. And so we get trapped into this thing, you know, even writing people's names or descriptors, you know, when you say, who's Tina? I don't write, my name's Tina. I'm an amputee that da, 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 da. I'm Tina because I'm a mom and I'm a PA and I'm a this and I'm a that. Oh, and I have one leg. So he knows it doesn't define me. He knows that these things don't define other people. And he finds it fascinating. I mean, I could tell you, I'm just going to show you a picture. So this was at the Amputee Coalition Conference. There's about a thousand people at this conference in the middle of a city he's never traveled to before. That woman that he's sitting in the lap of is a total stranger to him. He just runs up to this scooter, sees a beautiful woman using it to get around, jumps in her lap. She takes him for a ride. He must have, you know, touched so many walkers and wheelchairs that day. Uh, he He's a little light bringer and he, his world, I think, is going to be so much um, more full of opportunity and beauty because he's able to see uh, that as a primary view through the lens of our life. Uh, You know, he knows that mom can't always do some things in certain ways, but that we figure out a unique and adapted way of doing things and that that process of learning and the process of problem solving is fun and fulfilling to do. It's okay to not do things a certain way. As long as we feel like we tried, that effort is what we're seeking. The the lessons from the failures of that is what we're seeking, not necessarily 
the direct getting it done. And I think that that's a big lesson uh, that I know I wish I could have learned sooner. And so, uh, you know, it's been beautiful. It's been, you know, hard. I'm a, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, you know, trying when I was first a new mom and I'm trying to, you know, breastfeed my son as I'm rocking him before bed and I have to kick my prosthetic off because I don't have good blood flow. And then while he's dead weight on my lap, in the dark, trying to figure out where my prosthetic is so I can put my leg in it to try to stand up steadily on it with the most precious 12 pound thing of my life that I can't drop and try to get him over to the crib. And I mean, it's, it's a lot and, but it's not, it's not unmanageable. You just figure out systems and, um, and as he's been growing, I mean, it's just been so beautiful to watch him, you know, try to put my leg on. Like the other day, he picked my leg up and goes, oh, mama. And he walks over to me and is so proud that he got my leg. And then he tries to stick his foot in it. And I said, I'm sorry, feet aren't allowed in that. And he looked at me like he was disappointed that he didn't get the opportunity to have fun with this thing, you know. Uh, so it's it's been healing for me. It's been really beautiful to watch. And I think for him, it's going to be a big advantage. I, I love it. And I love what you said. It's a lot, but not unmanageable. That hits the point spot on. Tina, an audience member wants to get in touch with you. What's your social media platform of choice? Um, well, let's see. I'm Tina Godfrey Hurley on Facebook or Tina H214 on Instagram. Um, and you can always email me, Tina at Uh I would love to hear from folks. Awesome. And any uh, words of inspiration for people that are going through amputation, going through a tough time in their life? Yeah. Uh, I love this quote. And this really resonated for me when things were tough. Um, Only when you repeatedly expose yourself to annihilation is that which is indestructible found within you. So what that meant to me was I'm going through another thing on another thing and another thing. And it was just so dark and so hard. But if you can just trust that your warrior tools are being forged in that, even if you don't recognize what they are and, and how they'll serve you. Um, you know, I think that that helps you understand that there is still utility to having to survive through those things. Very well said. And it brings us right back to the beginning of the show when we talked about you don't know what you're capable of. Tina, it's been great having you on our podcast. Thank you for your time and your energy and this wonderful warmth that you provide into the community and into our audience. I do ask my audience members, if you like something off of our show, please subscribe, please share this with your community. Um, Tina's message needs to be heard by many, many more people because she's providing this light to us. So again, Tina, Tina, thank you for being with us today. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for tuning in to the Chief Endurance Officer Podcast. To hear more inspiring stories and strategies around the endurance mindset, be sure to subscribe below or visit us at chiefenduranceofficer.com. Until next time, keep pushing those limits.